By some means, I managed to extricate myself. Just before that, I was smothered, and I thought I'd been thrown into the Charles River. Marty Clarky. It is January 15, 1919, and two million gallons of molasses is about to create a sticky, sweet, rampant destruction in the North End. This is some kick-ass Boston history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Boston History. We profile only the most badass, captivating Boston stories. It's all mass sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Today we look at a classic tale of a great flood of molasses in Boston's North End. This podcast is brought to you by Packers Premium Bread, Dorchester's favorite, William Regan. So you like history? Let me tell you a story. My family's been baking Parker's premium bread since before Pudge hit that homer against the Reds, before Bobby Orr was a Bruin, and probably before you were born. We haven't changed a goddamn thing since. We make white bread, because bread shouldn't taste like Quaker oats before you add the water. Parker premium breads and buns lets the flavor of your food shine, because if you're going to eat a lobster roll, you want to taste the lobster, right? Baked in Dorchester and enjoyed everywhere. Don't be a chowder head. Get Parker's. It's wicked good. Noon on January 15, 1919. Little did the residents of Boston's North End realize that very soon they would be at the epicenter of one of the worst disasters in Boston's history. The Great Molasses Flood. Sitting in the middle of this busy borough, strategically located between the railroad track and the bank of the Charles River, was a giant fucking tank. No, really. This structure was monstrous. An absolute behemoth of a container. The tank was 50 feet high, 90 feet in diameter, and from certain sections of the street below, literally blocked the sunlight. With no exaggeration, this tank held over 2 million gallons of molasses, or several shit tons to you and me. So of course, dear ass kicker, I know what you're going to ask. Why was there a fucking giant tank of molasses in the North End? We asked a similar question to Stephen Puglio, author of the definitive book on the affair, Dark Tide, The Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. Molasses uh, at the time, believe it or not, was a very critical war industry, a World War One industry. Molasses was the raw material that was further distilled into industrial alcohol, and that industrial alcohol further used in the production of high explosives, munitions, um, nitroglycerin, TNT, uh, those sorts of things for the war effort. So molasses was a protected war industry at the time. The molasses tank on Boston's waterfront was essentially a holding tank uh, where the molasses was kept until it was transported by rail, by auto cars, uh, oil cars, rather, um, to a distilling plant about a mile away. So if you can just picture that tank as a holding tank, uh, molasses was brought up uh, on steamships from 
Cuba and Puerto Rico and the West Indies, held in that tank until needed, and then processed further and again used in the production of munitions. Molasses was used in the production of, of, of many things, uh, from rum uh, to, um, you know, baked beans. Uh, but in this particular time, and most of this molasses was used for the World War I um, war effort. The tank had been quickly and shoddily constructed in an effort to make whopping war dollars faster. And the tank leaked. It leaked so much molasses that the children would put buckets under its massiveness to collect the sticky substance, and they would dip and submerge sticks in the syrupy puddles that collected under the Colossus. The tank would vibrate and moan each time a giant ocean tanker, fresh from the Caribbean, would pump more of the liquid into the cavernous confines. A dull, muffled roar was the briefest of warnings the residents of the neighborhood were afforded. The North End at the time has been described as being as congested as Calcutta, India. It was one of Boston's busiest neighborhoods, and the mere density of the population would have disastrous consequences. One eyewitness stated, I distinctly heard the rumbling that preceded the explosion. First, I thought it was an elevated train. Then, I thought it was an elevated train on fire. <laughs> Likely due to the fermentation of the molasses and the pressure of the resulting confined gases, the top of the behemoth molasses tank was blown into the air. The circular tank's great wall split in two, and the massive hold of molasses had no further obstruction. Unimpeded and finally free, it rushed across the streets. It is difficult to conceptualize a literal flood of over two million gallons of viscous liquid. When the tank burst, a wave of the substance was unleashed. The liquid featured a crest 35 feet high that traveled at 35 miles an hour. The sticky surf eventually dropped to a fosse only 20 feet high, but a staggering 160 feet wide. Most of the molasses flowed south on Commercial Street for about three quarters of a mile. The wave has been described as scouring everything in its path. People, wagons, horses, houses, and leaving essentially a field of kindling in its wake. Another commentator has accurately portrayed the wave as a roaring wall of death. Marty Clardy's home was near the tank. I was in bed on the third floor of my house when I heard a deep rumble. The first impression I had that something had happened was when I awoke in several feet of molasses. It seemed as if the house had split in two. The house was propelled off its foundation, down the block, and smashed against the elevated streetcar tracks. Tony Sordillo saw the cloudy house under the elevated track. He said, It was all smashed up, and I began to holler to some sailors, Come, get the people out. One man was standing at the top of the park, and a woman was trying to wash the molasses from him, but he was bleeding. The survivors were struck dumbfounded by the accident. It was like it was almost impossible to comprehend two million gallons of molasses rushing through the streets like an unleashed, brown, gelatinous tsunami. As Marty Clardy collected his wits, he saw some sparks and smoke as I lay in the wreckage, but whether this came from the contact of the house with the third rail on the elevated structure or from the explosion, I could not tell. All I remember was a smothering sensation, probably as I was flying through the air. Then I thought I was overboard. What had really happened didn't occur to me at all for a long time.
21 people were killed in the Great Molasses Flood. The victims' ages ranged from Michael Sennett, a 76-year-old messenger, to Pasquale Iantosca and Maria D'Estacio, two 10-year-old children who liked to play under the tank. 150 Bostonians were injured, many of them very severe wounds. Back, pelvic, and skull injuries were serious and common. A Boston Globe headline summed up the scene perfectly when they simply printed, molasses, molasses everywhere. Disarray reigned over the devastated neighborhood. Railroad cars were thrown about, upended. The fire station lay on its side, hurled down the street in chaos. Horses struggled to free themselves from the thick muddle. Survivors wandered through the morass, seeking family members, co-workers, and friends. Tony Sordillo told a reporter, I couldn't find my two brothers, and I went looking for them, but I couldn't get far. The molasses, he, he filled the street. Marty Clardy said, I couldn't find my mother. I shouted for her and yelled for those that had come along the street to find her. I couldn't locate her. It seemed an hour while I was trying to find her, but soon someone told me she had been found and that she was dead. We asked Stephen Puglio, author of Dark Tide, why is this such a seemingly strange story? So I think there's an element of fantasy and, and maybe an element of, of disbelief because of the substance itself, which is molasses. Um, I think had this been water or fire or, or earthquake uh, or anything else, I think it would be really viewed as the tragedy that it was. But molasses, I think, brings just a little bit of almost a comical element to an event that was far from that. Um, there were 21 people killed in this disaster, 150 people injured, many of them very, very seriously. Uh, and as I said, widespread um, property damage and destruction. So I think the element of disbelief is the substance, the nature of the substance itself. Mr. Puglio told us a bit about the folklore that has evolved around the flood. So lots of folklore has grown up about the flood. Um, one of those is that on a hot day uh, in the North End, you can still smell molasses, which is not true. Um, I've been down there on many hot days, and, and you can't smell it still. But I think the legend stems from the fact that you could indeed smell it for years and years afterwards. Um, this whole area was completely devastated and covered in molasses, so um, that's one of the reasons. The other uh, myth, I think, that kind of surrounds the flood, and, and I don't use myth in a disparaging way, I think the folklore is really an interesting part of the story, but one of the other uh, pieces of folklore is that molasses completely inundated the entire city of Boston, uh, which was not true. It was uh, one section of one neighborhood, uh, but I think that folklore stems from the fact that after the flood, molasses was literally tracked all over the city. So it was tracked on subway trains, 
It was uh, on payphones throughout the city. There were lots of reports of people who would put put a payphone up to their ear, and, and there would be molasses on the phone. Uh, it was on. It was in horse troughs that were scattered around the city for municipal horses to drink from. And so I think as the molasses gets tracked through the city after the flood, that myth kind of grew up that the flood literally inundated the entire city of Boston. Next, we asked Mr. Puglio why this amazing story just isn't that well known. Sure, I think the molasses flood um, as an incident, as a historical event, which I think has, it has many important long-range ramifications, but I think it kind of gets lost in, in the city of Boston because Boston really prides itself on being a, what I would call a big history city, and justifiably so. So its revolutionary history, of course, is unparalleled. People from all over the world come to Boston, the beginning of the American Revolution. And in fact, the molasses tank and the molasses flood occurs in that very neighborhood, uh, revolutionary neighborhood. And so I think it kind of gets lost there. Boston kind of prides itself on the emergence uh, of the Irish politician, most notably uh, John F. Kennedy. And so that's another big part of Boston's history. Boston was one of the leading uh, places for the abolitionist movement in the late in the 1850s. And so another huge part of Boston's history with worldwide ramifications. So I think some of the flood story gets lost in that, in the fact that Boston views itself as a big history um, city. I had six children when I went to work this morning. Now, I only have five. Thank you for listening, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from our crew. We hope you agree this episode featured some kick-ass Boston history. Oh, and by the way, April Fool's! Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Special thanks to Stephen Puglio and William Regan, Deb Beresford, and Emily Ross Johnson. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at ORHistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon History events, pick up Oregon History merchandise, get lists of songs featured in each podcast, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. You can also support the podcast. Go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook the email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass!
me gold. Me gold, me gold, <laughs> oh, me gold. Faith me gold. Okay, where are we? <laughs>